Hello, and welcome to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Matt Mose. I'm Josh Chappell. And I'm Andy Probasco. Today, we'll be talking about the most recent TSO, as well as the Power 9 Challenge, Deck Choice and Vintage, and then Pizza. I don't really know how to jump into this Power 9 Challenge thing, I guess. All right, so... Well, I think Brass Bandit started off. He's the one that made the top eight. Brass Bandit, you played in this? I did play it. top eighted it. I top eighted it. Wow. It's okay. So, so since since our last podcast, there was the uh, January Power 9 Challenge. Correct. And the latest uh, Team Series Open. So lots of cool top eight, top 16 decks to look at. Uh, I guess we'll start with the Power 9 challenge because we mentioned it because there's less to explain. <laughs> Just so it's more interesting. We can skim the decks. So Power 9 challenge, uh, was over 100 players. Not much over 100, but it was over 100 online. It got beat by, um, Princess Power took first place with a, uh, blue, red, blue, white, red mentor deck. Do you know uh, who that is? I don't. I played against uh, him or her. A uh, number of times <laughs> online, so I'm familiar with the username, but I haven't uh, I haven't met them or, or know them in person. Yeah, I mean, it looks like a pretty standard monastery mentor slash young pyromancer list, right? I mean, it's I'm looking at it and not seeing anything that I'm surprised by, but it looks like a good deck. Like I'm not surprised it won. Yeah, it's just it's just all solid cards. I think the the thing that stands out to me is that they're running four Flusterstorms main deck. Uh-huh. Oh, uh huh. Oh, sure. Yeah, Flusterstorms a great card. You don't see four very often. I think a lot of people are reacting to Storm Combo right now. Yeah, it's so dead against Shops, though. Yeah, that's. I mean, all, all we've heard recently is Storm and Shops at the top, and I mean, that's a that's a blank against Shops. Yeah, that man is <laughs> really good against Storm. Uh, yeah, but but I mean, that brings up a good point. I think it's really interesting. I mean, the deck is, like you said, it's pretty standard. We've seen a lot of this before, but the fact that Mentor Deck is just winning, they just keep winning, and nobody's talking about them. Nobody looks for them in a shock to see them in a tournament, but they just keep winning and everyone says, oh, shops and, shops and TPS. Right. It's interesting too. I mean, if you're, if you're thinking of shops as being a big deck, I mean, this has a lot of dead cards against shops. I mean, this has the four fluster storm. It has four mental misstep. I mean, Gitaxian probe isn't great against shops. I mean, they're not going to. Yeah. Something that I forgot, which is really cool about this deck that you might not notice at first glance is, so the main deck has a strip mine and a wasteland. The uh-huh. sideboard has three wasteland. Yeah. I see that. So this deck goes to now, you still have a ton of dead cards against shops, right. but five strips is, I mean, other than Landstill, there's no other blue deck that does that really. I mean, I guess like Bugfish, but, but people really like Bugfish against shops, so, um, it's interesting. It's, I think, I think it's an interesting call. Well, you go up a bunch shops is really easy. I mean, you, you have a bunch of stuff to bring out and you have, you know, plenty of stuff to bring in with the Inga Chewers, the Shattering Spree, the Wastelands of the Mountain, right? Mm-hmm. I, I imagine Nullrod is very good against some shops lists. Right. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. certainly can see that when you're boarding. It seems like you get a lot of, you know, bringing in all those lands gives you something to do, even if they have so many spears out. Like, you know, you're still mm-hmm. still somewhat in the game. I think the four Foster Storm is, is very aggressive and uh-huh. a storm card, but obviously it worked. And it's it's not like the deck is completely unprepared for shops. Right. Well, and, and, and having, having all those Foster Storms gives you the opportunity to, to use them on smaller things against other blue decks early. I mean, sometimes you play one or two Fluster Storms and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to use this on something big that I really need to counter, 
this gives you an opportunity to throw a couple away, sort of, with the idea that you can you'll find more cluster storms. Yeah, you can definitely hit just a preordain or something with this. Yeah, and you not feel be, too bad about it. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I'm terrified to play against Bluster Storm. Yeah. Like, with everything. Not just Storm, just... <laughs> it's hard to play around. Yeah, well, it's scary. I mean, it's, you know, it's not explicitly uncounterable, but it, to a degree, is uncounterable, and, you know, it dominates a counter war. Gotta play more dudes. Yeah. <laughs> so, on the topic of uh shops, as we were just saying, the second place deck was a shops deck. Again, nothing too crazy outlandish in this. This is, we've been seeing a lot of shop stacks that run like Archon Robbers and a lot of creatures. This is a little more traditional in that it's running a full four spheres, but it still is running a lot of creatures, a lot more than the older shop stack would have. Right. Um, well, it seems like it has Porcelain Legionnaire against the Mirror. I mean, that's... Yeah, um, I would imagine that's what it's there for primarily anyway. I mean, it's not going to do a whole bunch against Pyromancer or Mentor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At least blocks all day. I don't know. I mean, it's, yeah, they can't just temple you out with a with a right. turn to pyromancer, but yeah, eventually they'll get there. Right. But yeah, this is uh, God, this has all the lock pieces, right? Like every spear you can run. Yeah. One null rod. One null rod is a little weird to me. I feel like if if you're gonna run null rod, you might as well have access to more of them. Which is well, one of the sideboard, but it's interesting because I think of it as the fifth Phyrexian revoker. Ooh. Yeah, I, I could see that. In some of my lists, I would play Revoker over Null Rod just because you can, you know, you can hit Planeswalkers and things like that, which I think is important, more important than having Null Rod in a lot of cases because you have so many spears. This just adds to that number. There's also the uh, two coercive portal in there, which isn't unheard yeah. of, but right. I was just reading that card. I don't know what that card is. Yeah, that was new to <laughs> me tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so if it's new to anyone in the stream, it's it's funny because the card has a lot of text and. <laughs> that does nothing. Yeah. It, it's one of the, uh, what's the set that it was in? It was a commander set or? No, it was a conspiracy. Conspiracy, conspiracy. conspiracy yeah. So it, it's one of the cards where all the players vote on something, but since it's a two-player game, you're never going to get the votes to go the way you want. So it's just, um, it does the same thing every time. Yeah. Um, and what it does is it just draws a card every turn. So during your upkeep, draw a card. It, there's a lot of other text there, but in Vintage, it's just four mana artifact. Well, it's interesting because you can vote to destroy all non-land permanents, which your opponent can yeah. overrule. But in, in, in theory, it only works if your opponent wants to destroy all permanents. Right. Which case you shouldn't right. vote yes. Yeah. But if you think you're like outsmarting your opponent, if you if you like put a read on him, I'm sure I'm sure somebody has done that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've I've had opponents vote for the uh, carnage, mm-hmm. and uh, I've I've gone along with it because why not? <laughs> I mean, there, there are definitely times where Carnage is this the right card answer. Carnage. Oh, Carnage, I see. If there are two qualified players against each other, <laughs> it should never do anything but draw a card because it's either either you want to clear the board or they want to clear the board, and either right. way, you're not getting both votes. Is four mana for one card advantage per turn? Is that really the most effective way for shops to to draw cards? Yeah, it's the most it's the most effective card of that type. Yeah, that just draws a card every turn. I mean, you could do stuff like Grafted Skullcap. Yeah. Sure, sure. I uh, guess you could like, uh, Lighting Tops and Voltaic Keys or, uh, Staff right. of Nins, which is arguably better because it, ta- it does damage too. But it does cost but, six. I mean, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, if all you want to do is draw a card every turn, uh, there's Uber Mass Bazaar, which can generate a huge amount of card advantage, but if you draw one half without the other, it does not do that much. Right. I think it's a mirror card. I don't know for sure. I didn't build this list. I didn't, it's four mana, so it's going to come down under spheres. Not, under every sphere, but it's easier yeah. to play under spheres. 
I mean, I, I feel like it's a threat as a blue player. I mean, there are times where, you know, the game is sort of stalled because, you know, Shops has put down a few spears or whatever, and we're just sort of sitting there. I can't do anything because I can't afford my spells. And then all of a sudden, he's drawing two cards a turn. Like, that'll put you away. Like, yeah. that's... I think that's that's intimidating because I mean yeah. one of the things that you try to do against the shops deck is you answer their opening seven, right, and then you recover right. faster than they do, right. And if they're gonna if they're gonna draw two cards a, ten, uh, a turn, that's that's certainly keeping them in the running. Sure, and it's not, I mean it's not as threatening as you know Bodestone Golem, but yeah. as a, as a four it. drop, like I'm afraid of my opponent drawing two cards to my one every turn. Yeah. Yeah, so this yeah, deck I, also plays the one-of chalice. Is, is it still good enough to just play as a one-of? Yes. Yep. Alright. <laughs> chalice restricted has been interesting because I, I think it's actually more threatening or more, more dangerous. No, it plays around it. Yeah, cause you, you don't play around it anymore. So if you, you're not gonna right. mulligan a keep, hand yeah. of lots of moxes, you know. If you have a land well, in three moxes, that's great against spheres. Right. Um, on the, on the draw, but you right. lose the chalice. Yeah, I, I think it's just, you end up with more targeted chalices. I mean, like, you know, if you, you miss that opening turn chalice, and you don't have it for, to drop on one, but like, you know, you'll have it later to drop on two for Hercules Recall, or drop on three to stop Yawgmoss Will or Tinker, or whatever is going to blow you out at that point in the game. And I've definitely had games since the restriction where opposing players have sort of gotten chalice in the mid-game, and they're not quite sure what to do with it. Yeah. And they say after I win, they're like, man, I really should have dropped, dropped that chalice on zero because it would have been yeah. way better. <clears throat> Cause, I don't know, I mean, like, even in the mid game, there are still, like, really effective plays that you can do dropping on zero. One's just obviously identifying <laughs> which is the right one. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's like, that's the mark of the, the master shops player. Right. Is the, the chalices and the revolvers. Yeah. Right. That's, Naming the the perfect card. It's it's easy to name a good card or or pick a good number, right. but the absolute correct card, absolute correct number. That's what the uh, the really experienced shop players. Because it's not about what do they have. It's not about what you know. It's not even about what they could draw. It's about what is going to matter. Yeah. What do you lose to? You need to get a lot of games to your belt. Uh, yeah. I certainly am not. I'm not always naming the right card with those things. That dreaded turn one blind revoker. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, what do you do with that? It's like, Lotus? Dak Faden? I, I see Dak Faden a lot. Yeah, I could say too, but I mean, you know, it depends on... I, I think Dak Faden's very yeah. often right, but it's yeah, not sure. always right. And, and the factors... And, and when you play two or three, it gets even more complicated. I've definitely, like, dropped my first one to Dak Faden, and my second one named one of their moxes and had it be wrong, yeah. because they either had a removal spell, or just it meant that I couldn't attack with my Dak Faden Revoker. Right. Into their blocker. Uh, you know, all kinds of things. It's very similar with, uh, with Chalice of the Void, right? Like, there, there are numbers that are never bad. It's never bad to have it on one when you have no one drops in your deck. Right. But, you'll definitely lose the corner case games where they play. I remember testing a bunch of games with four Chalice shops mirrors and finding Chalice on three to stop Dismember being, like, huge. <laughs> you just, like, needed to know it was coming. You needed to know, oh, this game's gonna come down to Dismember. Just like hard to hard to see in advance, but there's some really good shops out there who know that. Right. I was gonna say we could look at the third place list too. I mean that's a more aggressive, more creaturey workshop list. I mean you end up with the uh, Arkham Ravager, Hangerback Walker, and Triskelion. Those are all big artifact reliant dudes. <laughs> Does Hangerback Walker have staying power? 
Is he going mean, to be like, the Slash Panther of this season's shops? I think it's better than Slash Panther. <laughs> which, which, sorry, which card are we talking about? Hanger Bat Parker. I mean, this deck has been doing pretty well, and it's not like I guess the Sword of Fire Ice and the Jet make it to uh, make it a little different. It, it is definitely creature based and not just right. like the Triskelia does something different that the Worm Coil does in the other deck. I've really liked these lists when I've seen them in action and played them. Ravager is sort of this deceptive card. I mean, Ravager's been around for a while now in Vintage, but at first glance, it's just like this decent two-drop creature that gets bigger, but it does a lot to your opponent's sideboard cards. It, it really makes it hard to grind you out, you know, right. to... You can't dack fade anything with a Ravager out. Right. You, you don't really one-for-one one anybody. It makes combat math so difficult, because you have to actually... Uh, yeah. You have to look at their board and say, do I just lose to Ravager here? <laughs> like, am I dead? Yeah, I mean, if you're really good at combat math, you could you could probably just steamroll your way through a vintage event. Right. Vintage players just don't do it very often, so it doesn't. They don't have to practice it. Now, that's not like a good reason to play the deck at a tournament. You're just gonna right. run into somebody who who knows, knows what, they're, what they're, doing. they're doing. Today, there's more vintage players who come from standard or limited than there ever were. But you will get people with that. People yeah. will just block wrong, or not block enough creatures and just die because they didn't see they had lethal. It'll happen. That was going to be my question. Do you think that the people who are playing in the Power 9 Challenge are like, do you think they're exclusively vintage players, or do you think that they're ports from other format where they have more experience with combat now? I mean, I I don't know for sure, but I think it's more of a mix than it was before. Hmm. I mean, the barrier entry is so much lower. Right, people are like $10,000 Right. You need a thousand tickets for a super competitive deck, right? And you probably won a bunch of those tickets playing grass. What's a ticket? <laughs> <laughs> the MTGO equivalent of a dollar. Oh, okay. It, pretty close. Is, is that accurate? That's my understanding. Yeah, I thought that was right. I thought the, a ticket was a dollar. Yeah, I, yeah if, if you buy them from Wizards, they cost a dollar. You can, you can get them from people on eBay or whatever, but yeah, it's, it's a dollar. Yeah. Is there room for this deck to, I mean, I feel like this is the shops deck that we've been seeing for a while now. I mean, this is fairly close to what top eight of the champs, right? And, I mean, do you feel like there's room for this deck to change? Like, is there something that this deck could be doing to win more, win better? I think this is the deck to beat. I think this is the top shop deck. I don't know for sure. But there's a lot of ways you can build a deck that right. preys on this deck. I mean, no rod really hurts a lot of the cards in this deck. And we saw yeah, the second place deck had that. There's a lot of ways you could build a deck that beats up these cards, but you wouldn't necessarily be as good against the field. And this deck does run a, a few less lock pieces, so if Storm is the real deal, I mean, it's obviously a good deck, but if it became the majority of the field, you wouldn't want to play this deck. You would want to run as many spheres as possible. Right. It's, it's still running most of the lock pieces, but you would want to yeah, not. I, th- I think all it's cutting is the two spheres, right? It's got everything else, Trinisphere, Thorn, Tanglewire, Bloodstone, I mean, you're certainly not hurting. Yeah, it for, just runs a few less lands. Doesn't run a crucibles or runs less crucibles in this case. Yeah, I mean it's, it's pretty similar. They're not far off. Right. Uh, no, no rot. Right. You can't run no rot in this deck. Yeah. Um, no rot is obviously very good against storm. Against a lot but, of decks. But again, you have four Phyrexian invokers sort of taking the place of that, so you can shut down boxes and you can shut down planeswalkers where necessary. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So um, we'll, the the next deck, fourth place is. We might have talked about this last time. It's it's this bug control deck, which I kind of expected to immediately go away, but here it is again. Maybe it'll keep showing up. It's just kind of blue, black, green, good stuff, right? It's just 
Vault Key, Tinker Colossus, bunch of counters, bunch of draw spells. I like the look of this deck. It's a lot like I think most yeah. of the decks used to look like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, this it's is just, you know, you kind of pick your colors and you run the best cards in those colors. Right. And yeah. it's called a day. It's got a gift given, which you don't see a lot these days. This is essentially the Grixis deck from before, only it switched out red for green, right? And then this is, this is what won champs in yeah. 2013. Yeah, it's, it's pretty similar to that. Um, I don't think there was anything particularly crazy in it. Yeah. It, this, this runs on the back of Thirst for Knowledge. There's not so much to say about it, I guess. It's just, there's a lot of tools in those colors, just using those tools and not trying to do anything fancy. Right. Um, yeah. Which, I, I think overall it just looks vintagey. Like this. this I, mean, I like, like it. Like, this is what I in the ranks is a great card. <laughs> As an aside, when did we stop running Jace? Well, this deck does have one Jace. Right. And that, that would but, have been my. But you're right. It used to be like, I'm surprised that there's, uh, a, I would have pointed that out, that there's only one Jace and that seems surprising to me. But as I look at the, the rest of the decks here and other decks I've played against recently and seen, there's not a lot of Jace around anymore. There's a lot of Jace, it's just a different one. Yeah, I guess that's, <laughs> that's true. That's, that's, that's true. I, I think that there was a time right before when they before they unrestricted first, like around the time of last chance, the Delver decks just sort of ran over a big Jace. You can't really run a four-drop Jace into one Pyromancer and two tokens. It's just going to die at a turn. And they run, like, main deck and some, some number of sideboard and possibly main deck revs. It just wasn't a place you want to be tempo-wise against the Delver Chops format. But that's not true anymore. Uh, and Mentor doesn't quite do the same thing that Pyromancer did to Jace. So maybe people just haven't adjusted yet. I think, maybe people I think are just also, playing decks where they don't want it as much. It, it doesn't fit in well as well with gush lists, right? Well, you also see more people running Dax in place of Jays. I think Dax has sort of taken the place of that Planeswalker you want to fix your hand right, when it comes mm-hmm. into play. And, I mean, Dax obviously has uh, applications against shops that Jace does not, for one, being <laughs> cheaper and for two, stealing your stuff. So, I, I mean, I think there's there's just different things to run in place. I think with, uh, I mean, people have stopped running Dark Confidant, too, and Jace and Dark Confidant were, like, best buds forever, because stack the top of your library and draw what you wanted with Dark Confidant and not take damage. I mean, I know having having both of those in play, you just wanted to find Time Walk as soon as you could. Yeah, I, I think I think the format sped up a little bit, made Jace a little worse, but mm-hmm. it has maybe slowed down a little. It's weird when you say speed, because it, when I say sped up, it's uh, Delver and Shops decks, which you don't consider fast decks. And now there's Storm, which you do consider a fast deck, but it's like, I guess it became less tempo-oriented. The format was more tempo-oriented. Now it's less tempo-oriented. Even if the games have fewer turns, it's not about, like, fighting over mana costs, maybe. I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, mean, maybe Shops, people shouldn't be running it or not. Shops is, a, I think, is a fast deck. I mean, a lot of the decks are. You may not be at zero life on turn two or three, but, like, you're not going to win by turn two or three. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're things that you have to react quickly to. I mean, Delver and Shops both, actually. But, I mean, I mean, we're right. looking at, I, I'm thinking of Dark Petition Storm, which is our fifth place list. That sort of seems like a slower list to me because it takes a turn to set up before it actually does anything kind of relevant in a lot of cases. Yeah, you could be right. I mean, it, it, it wins the game faster, but right. it sort of spends one to three turns setting up and then does right. something big. Whereas, like with Delver, you're, you execute your primary game plan from turn one. Right. Because your primary game plan is, I'm just going to play a one-drop every turn this game. Right. So you're, well, all, like you're already going to counter whatever you do and play a one-drop and win Same with shops. I'm going to play a lot of these every turn this game. Yeah, so good time to bring up Dark Edition, as you said, the uh, fifth place list. So this, um, 
This is the other devil of the uh, board, looks correct? Like a standard dark position list. Running, uh, just duresses and cabal therapies as the only disruption. Some number of defense grids on the sideboard to stop counters. Well, this um, really sucks because it has, uh, it has red in it. I mean, it has the Wheel of Fortune in the main deck and then the, it has Empty the War in the post board. Is that usual? I wouldn't say it's unusual, but it's not, you know, there's, there's lists that have it, there's lists that don't. Uh, right. I think Empty is more interesting than the Wheel of Fortune. I think the wheels, like nobody's adding red just for the wheel. Right. It's a question of, do you think Empty is a good anti-shops plan? Right. And I, I don't know the answer to that, but that's, um, I think that's what people do. Yeah. Uh, run that sideboard for it. It's it pretty seems, easy to splash. It sort of seems interesting to me. I've been sort of avoid, I mean, I'm, I mean, I play Red Green Belcher, so I'm a fan of Empty the Warrens anyway, but, I mean, I've been avoiding Empty in a lot of cases simply because I feel like decks are prepared to deal with Pyromancers, or, um, yeah, Pyromancer and Mentor Tokens. And Illness in the ranks, man. I know. Yeah. Bad shit. Well, exactly. But I, I mean, I guess your opponent sort of has to expect it, so, you know. Yeah, it's tough. I, I, I have not played this list with empty in it to really know exactly all the situations you want it. It may be yeah. only bringing it against shops and nothing else. Still, I mean, shops could just play it for Skellion, which stops, what, like, seven or eight tokens? Yeah. Because it doesn't have to kill them, right? It just has to, like, block two of them and then kill two others. It's like, right. really hold, slows you down. Never mind just, like, a two-two. Yeah. But, Earlier, um, Wheel of Fortune is an anti Yeah, so, so, so like, also the side one is the statistics out there. Oh yeah, huh? I guess I haven't seen that card in a while. So. Uh, with Hercules? Oh, you're talking Sacrament? Sadistic Sacrament and Hercules? <laughs> no, no, no. He's I don't know what we're talking about here. Wheel of yeah. Fortune and Hercules. He's he's behind two two conversations. One, yeah, Wheel of Fortune. Oh, I get it now. Sorry. Yeah, that's that is a good combination. Yeah, um, that, that, that that's usually you win anyway if you have Hercules, but it's that's a favorite trick good. against my deck with all my draw sevens and all my artifact mana. People to, to bounce all your stuff and then sandbag the Hercules recall until I cast a draw seven and then oh uh, yeah yeah and then bounce all of my uh, my mana into my hand. I mean, looking at draw seven too, like Wheel of Fortune against shops is an enforced draw seven. I mean, if you play that on, or if you have that on the play and you force them to mulligan into what might be a terrible hand. That that was, that was what I was thinking, and I'm like, man, this is oh yeah yeah. Cool. That's that's true. That's definitely true. I mean, you have to be on the play. But if you are, you know, it, it gives you that extra opportunity to do that. Right. The Twister does. It's gross. Well, I noticed, and we're, and we're going to get to um, some of the VSL decks a little bit later, but I noticed that Chris Piccolo was playing a similar Storm list that also ran one Simeon Spirit Guide in the main for red, and he was playing mm-hmm. Wheel of Fortune and Into the Worms, I think, too. And I thought that was kind of interesting. I, I mean, I remember when Spirit Guides were popular in Storm decks just as an extra... Essentially colorless free manosaurs. Not quite as yeah, good people, as an people, oath. <laughs> it's true. Oath will be a little better. Yeah, so, so, and we mentioned a second ago, or a minute ago, Sadistic Sacrament. I've been seeing a few of these. It's kind of a cool storm mirror plan. Uh-huh. You bring them in, you ritual them out. These are storm decks that are usually running one tendrils. There have been times when different things were in vogue, people running Tinker Colossus main, or two tendrils, or different opinions on that. You could bring in an empty the words, but the vast majority of these lists today are running one tendrils. That's it. You're not going to yeah. board in the empty against the in the mirror. Yeah. And so this sacrament is usually going to be a kill, which is weird because well, historically yeah, well, these I, effects are not very good in vintage. But yeah. every once in a while, there's a deck losing. Well, I remember playing Jester's Cap and, and then uh, Sadistic Sacrament in Belcher sideboards too for the same reason. I mean, it used to be like it used to be that before 
well, basically before Jace and before Snapcaster, like, decks would only run the Tinkerbot and a Tendrils and, you know, maybe something else. If you could get both of those, like, you won. Like, there were, there were a lot of decks that lost to that, to mm-hmm. taking three wing conditions out. So, something I never like about those cards is that, like, this isn't a unique thing. Other people right. are running Sadistic Sacraments. If you're a Storm player, and you think your opponents are in Sadistic Sacrament, the things you can do to sideboard against that are bringing in extra threats. So you could put in your sideboard, you don't see this very often, but you could put in your sideboard two Tendrils of Agony, right. or, or two Tendrils in an Empty, or a Ticker Colossus. You could put more kill cards in your sideboard, and then they're bringing in dead cards, and you're bringing in extra Tendrils, which is not bad. It's, right. it's not a dead card by any means. It's like increases the redundancy of your combo. Oh, sure, um, yeah. And so you end up in this terrible situation. But the fact is, nobody does that, so it doesn't <laughs> really matter, right? Even though people, there's a really easy way to beat Sadistic Sacrament, but nobody does it, so until they do, Sadistic Sacrament is good. So that's, <laughs> so it's fine. Well, I mean, um, but that's interesting, because I mean, if you're looking at this particular fifth place list by J.D. Phoenix, like, okay, he's got the one Tendrils main deck, he's got an Enter the Warrens in the board, and two Sadistic Sacrament. So, I mean, you'd have to have, he, basically he would be switching those two Sadistic Sacrament for two Tendrils, or, I mean, is he a Tinker main deck? No. Uh, but, he, I mean, so he's switching those for two tendrils, essentially. But, and you, uh, you don't need to have four in your deck. You right. can also just have one in your hand, right? Sure. If they if the sacrament you and you have tendrils in your hand, <coughs> you just lost that debt. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But for now, as long as no one's doing anything crazy like that, and, and there must be a lot of sadistic sacrament in the field for you to bother doing that. Yeah, sure. There are other decks that sacrament is relevant against, but the yeah. thing is, you're a storm deck. Your game plan against Oath is not sacrament you, right? That's not what you want to do. Right. Well, be, I mean, if you look at probably, you know, if, skipping ahead here to uh, Rich Shea's seventh place list, like he's got three planeswalkers in his deck and three creatures. Like Sadistic Sacrament doesn't actually leave him dead because I mean he could just beat you with Jace. It might take a little bit more work for him to do that, but yeah, you know, so he'll if he establishes control and gets Jace in play, like he's well on his way to doing that. So. Yeah, and if you're if you're burning a dark ritual into yeah. Sadistic Sacrament early to do it. Yeah, you're banking it's on not, that to win. <laughs> like you just gave them a leg up on, but you could definitely catch people with their pants down and wreck them. And sure. it's, it's a fun way to beat somebody if you do it. Right. Well, if you're if you're just looking uh, for it as one way to win a game too, like it's it's an interesting option. That's reasonable. Uh, next next we have a dredge list T S O A T T. This is a more of a classic dredge list. So it's running missteps, but it's not a, a pitch dredge list. I forget if any of those um, made it, but this is you know. Just yeah. all the all the regular classic cards, handful of drive returns, lots of removal, lands in the sideboard, and removal in the sideboard. Yeah, it looks pretty standard. Is there a lot of dredge online? It is cheap, yeah, but it is. in paper vintage, dredge is thousands of dollars cheaper than the next most expensive deck. In Magic Online, it's a couple hundred dollars cheaper. Right. So it's not as big a difference. I want to say, um, so I actually have data on this because somebody on the manage rain looked it all up. Actually, one of the guys who top eight it. And he had said, so there were something like uh, 100-ish players, and in this event, Dredge was the second most popular deck at um, 16 players, so 15% of the metagame. And so the three numbers he gives, which I think are all very interesting, is Shops had 21 players, the most. Dredge had 16, and uh, Storm had 16. So Storm and Dredge were both 15% of the metagame, which is a decent amount. Um, yeah, that's more than shops you even more. But shops you could break up in a few different archetypes. Right, sure. Um, I feel like um, with those numbers, like, shops online is actually a lower percentage than what I would expect from a 
a real tournament? I guess it's a quarter, right? No, it's a fifth. I mean, a lot of times I will play on somewhere around a third of the deck being shot in real life. I could be wrong. Is it? <laughs> I never seem to play against it, so. Yeah. Must be nice. <laughs> it's weird. Uh, so Leyline obviously beats other dredge decks, but it's, it's pretty solid against Storm. Yeah. Which is I, historically one of Dredge's worst matchups. Uh, yeah, and it seems like it's good against, seems like it's good against Storm in the sense that you only need to buy a couple turns against them. So if you, you know, slow down their, their Dark Petition or the Yogmoth Will or whatever. Yeah. And, and get some attacks in like you win. And then they don't have time to recover. Yeah. Unless their hand is already, you know, really good anyway. It also, um, this probably does matter, it, interestingly, against a workshop deck. It's just Crucible, which doesn't really matter. It can matter, but it usually doesn't. Um, it stops creatures from hitting the graveyard, which means they can't remove your bridges. Oh, yeah. If they have an Arcbound Ravager out, or a Dreskelion, it's really easy for them to just pop your bridges anytime you get one, before you get anything. Right. Uh, they can just keep sacking, you know, Revokers or, or Mistress Factories to just kill your bridges all the time. So... I don't know if you would board in Leyline just to beat that. It's not a card you that comes to mind when you think of an anti-shops card, but for Dredge, it actually it can make a difference. It also shuts off um, Modular. Not that yeah. it matters, but if, if the Ravager dies, it doesn't transfer its tokens to something else. Um, right. It's going to matter, because sometimes that that magic gets kind of combat magic. You're not going to mulligan to Leyline, but if you get it, you'll be you'll be happy to have it. So we can look ahead to uh, Brass Man's uh, or sorry, uh, Rich Shea's um, seventh place list with Grizzlebrand, Inferno Titan, Void Winnower, Oath. Yeah, what's with these creatures, man? I... <laughs> How so, many? Did, did you have to look up two of those? <laughs> I had to look up one of those. I know what Inferno Titan does. There's no, I don't. There's no shame in it. You know, to be honest, I don't really get it either. But he has been doing very well with it. Other people have been doing very well with it. I keep trying to compare it to like, oh, in this matchup. It's okay, but it doesn't do much. In this matchup, it's okay, but it doesn't do much. But I, I think it's not fair. If these are good cards, it's because they do a little bit in a lot of matchups. Right. There's no one matchup that totally blows well, out. This is, I mean, this is, this sort of harkens back to the, the Oath list that played the Angel, the Elephant, and Inkwell Leviathan, right? Yeah. I mean, where you, where you sort of had these three creatures that each one of them individually looks like not a card that you want, but when you put all three of them together, they somehow become good against an entire metagame. Is that fair, though? Because the reason you were playing Inkwell Leviathan is because you could tinker it out. Yeah, it's true. true. This deck is not playing a tinker. I, I, I guess that it just seems really strange to me to play so, a three-creature oath list. Because so don't forget, you can always, like, this is this sounds like a terrible argument, and maybe it is, but you can always board stuff out. So, like, the Inferno Titan is... In my opinion, it's obviously not very good against Storm. Voidwinnower and Grizzlebrand both do something relevant. I'd rather have a Grizzlebrand, but they both do something relevant. Inferno Titan doesn't. But I'd rather make sure that like, when I'm playing against Storm, I'm going to get Grizzlebrand or Voidwinnower, because if I get Inferno Titan, they just got a free turn. That's what I'm saying, is that game... Oh, you're saying you'd rather have that in Cyborg and board it in? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I don't know. If, if you don't expect a lot of Storm then you wouldn't want to do that, right? You main deck the Inferno Titan to... I, I, I'm assuming the Inferno Titan is for creature decks. It's not terrible to oath up against shops, and well, it's what, obviously it, pretty good against, like, Delver, but I don't know how common that is. Right, I mean, that, it, it's sort of like Inferno Titan seems like the one that's not answering vintage plays to me. Yeah. But, but, I mean, it is right. good against shops, and it is good against creature decks, and there are a lot of creature decks right now because you have Pyromancer and Mentor. It's worth saying that I, 
one of the reasons, I know one of the reasons Inferno Titan is there is it's pretty castable. Uh, it's oh, not okay. super castable, but it's a lot easier to cast an Inferno Titan than it is to cast a Grizzlebrand, especially... Well, I mean, the double red is kind of tough in this list, but it's probably easier than triple black. Or three mana a volcanic island. It's not terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not. Yeah, it, it's not super hard. And four forbidden. What about Void Winnower though? Is like what's so what's so much better about Void Winnower than Aona? That was that question. So. <laughs> so that's yeah, that's a conversation that I've had with a couple people on Facebook, including Rich. So I think against Storm Cabo, straight up, Iona's just better. But. All right, so Void Winnerer kills one turn faster, usually. Maybe sure. matters, maybe doesn't. Could matter a lot. I think against just Storm Combo, Iona would be better. But there are other matchups where th- there's no clear color that's better than the others to name. Uh, well, just Iona. like, oh, well, only this. It only impacts this. And it's like, okay, yeah. well, I'm not talking anything specific. It's like, oh, all right, whatever. Hope this works out. So Rich has told me that he's never lost against Storm Combo when Void Winnerer hit play. Now that's not entirely fair because it means you owe. It, mean, it means that you owe, right? It means that like the game has gone on long enough. But to me, it looks like the problem with Void Winnerer is against Combo is that uh, Dark Position costs five and Chain of Vapor costs five. You might not even slow the deck down, right? Like right. that and Dark Ritual costs one. These are all odd numbers for them just to get a Chain of Vapor as part of their two to chain. Not that hard for them to do. But, right, but they, they have to, yeah. I mean, I assume they're playing Chain of Vapor in the first place, but I mean, they can't do it with, they can't not, do it with Hercule Recall for a couple reasons. And yeah, it's true. I mean, like uh, and you're right, not every Storm Deck runs. Work. I think half do, half don't, and I think yeah. that as long as anyone in the world is playing Void Winnerer, you should at least run one, because it makes yeah, a right. big difference. But I mean, if you just run into the people that don't have it, or they have, you know, enough to go off without fighting the chain, but, you know, it buys you a turn, it probably buys you a turn, and maybe that's all you need if you have an active oath out. Sure. I'd rather have Crystal Brand, but you know I haven't played with the card, <laughs> so I don't know. How, it's it's such a unique effect that it's hard for me to say what the game is like when it's out because you know I I've played against it. It never felt like it mattered. Like I lost to it and I beat it, but it it felt like it would have been the same if it was a Crystal Brand or something. But it's it's not. This is not a one hit wonder. He's been doing well with the deck before then. Um, he has done well with it since. Other people have done well with Voidwinner. A lot of people have done with, well with Voidwinner. I don't know if it's just because anytime you set yourself up to oath up like a 10-10 creature, you're already in good shape. Like maybe just the oath core is so strong right now. Yeah. Um, part. I feel like there's a lot of creatures that you can choose to oath up and, you know, if you get to resolve oath, you're already okay. Like you're already winning that game because you have put oath into play and resolved and survived and, you know, you're not an idiot and getting like squire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's obvious a void winner in play is a good thing to have in play. Sure. There's, there's no doubt there. I don't know if it's better or worse than your other options. There's so much to factor in how castable it is. Yeah, right. You know, you really don't want two grizzle brands in play. I know that sounds like asking a lot, you know, but, uh, it is true that sometimes one grizzle brand doesn't do it. And if your deck is all grizzle brands, that's it. I feel like most of the time, Vice the better, but I'm not North player. I don't want to. I don't want to belabor that point because I really don't know. Yeah. Um, well, then, I just love that Oath Bridge doesn't get really popular because the Oath Mirror is probably the most miserable thing. <laughs> I love the Oath Mirror. Ugh. Just board out a bunch of Oaths and bring in real cards. I I do like the uh, one main deck pernicious deed. I see that in a handful of Oath lists. That never used to be a thing, but it is a thing now. Definitely isn't like unique to this, but like pernicious deed is not. It's not a great card. But there are a lot of situations 
in Oath where it's exactly what you want. A, a lot of people like to set up like a bunch of Grafdigger's cages and Containment Priest or whatever. It, it's, right. the, it's a card that that handles the things that are good against you in an efficient way. And, and it also just happens to just like smoke a, an early Mentor Pyromancer draw. So, um, so I, I can't imagine you want like three of them in your deck, but it, it is, I've seen it do some dirty stuff. Right. Well, let's look uh, at the uh, eighth place list. By this, some this looks yeah. terrible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, somebody apparently thinks that Painter Servant is good and vintage. Uh, yeah, I see two. That's awful. Four of them. Case Rinse Prodigy is $75 online. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I picked those up real cheap. I'm happy with that one. Oh, uh, yeah. So, so I got eighth place in this event, which first of all is really funny because the eighth place prize is better than the sixth place prize. Um, How does that work? Yeah, it's, what's it's, the difference? It's, so it's power all the way down. First place is like a ton. You got a Lotus. No, it's a Lotus online. So it's like, I think a Lotus online. $30? Yeah, like under 30. So it's, it's not like crazy. But first place gets the Lotus and a full foil set of Battle for Zendikar. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Online. But you can trade that in for a real one if you want to. There's the redemption policy. If you have a full set online. A real online, foil set? If you if you have a full set or a full foil set, you can trade it in for a card version. There's like a fee, like a restocking fee. There used to be one, there is one now, but but basically, the first place prize was legit, the full foil set. Second place prize was like an ancestral and a full regular set. Hmm. So first and second, real real deal. And it's like the old Power Nine tournaments where it goes like Lotus ancestral time walk, it goes down. Third and fourth also get like a force of will, which is like pretty expensive online. But uh, and then it's just power all the way down. But the prices of power online, like, fluctuate a lot. They don't necessarily line up to what they are in paper. So it just happens to be that the mocks they gave for eighth place is, I think, I forget what it was, like, Pearl. But the but the point is that the... Mox Pearl is worth more than Mox Emerald or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, uh, I think, like, in paper, they're different. Because the paper has this, like, historical memory of black decks used to be way better. So yeah. Mox Jet will always be expensive, even if there are more Mox Pearls in the metagame because right. of, uh, you know, like, Mentor decks. Though Mox Jet's still expensive online. Yeah, it's just funny. It's, it's not a big difference, but they'll probably right. change that eventually. But yeah, uh, I played Painter. I've been really liking this deck. It's not very popular. I don't know if too many other people that have ever played it, but it's it's one of my favorites right now. So what would you would you play the same deck again? Or like were there were there cards that you're like, I really don't want to play that garbage anymore? <laughs> so so I had played I played this exact list in a few dailies in a row. Usually I, I change a card or two every time, but this exact list I've been on for a little while, I like it right now. I could see the metagame changing even a little bit and then changing stuff. So things like the um, Nile Spellbomb main deck is actually for Storm combo and not for um, Dredge, but it's nice to have against Dredge. Um, yeah. the, the three Sulfur Elemental in the sideboard is like the craziest thing. Mentor I love is, Sulfur Elemental. Yeah. That's a great card. It's so good against Mentor and worthless against everything else. If your metagame has like as much Delver as it has Mentor, you really don't want to run Sulfur Elementals into Young Pyromancers. But online, it's just for a while, it's been all Mentor. It's not as true anymore, but Mentor won it. So I mean, I I, I lost my two matches. One were too rich with Oath, and one was um, to the person who won in the top eight. And if I had drawn a Sulfur Elemental, I would have easily won. I would say easily, but I think I would have won if I drew a Sulfur Elemental. Um, I think if you had Illness in the ranks, you would have beat both of them. <laughs> well, I, I didn't draw the sulfur elemental. Uh, oh, it was the race against Oath? Maybe. I mean, I need creatures to win, I think. Eh, who knows? Yeah, your, um, your creatures are X1s, right? So, sulfur elemental, I've done a lot of, I've killed a lot of planeswalkers with it. It also kills the mentor, not just the tokens. 
if you get two, it kills the mentor. If you get one, you can kill the mentor if you, like, wait till they attack and block. They can't, like, stop you because it's all flash split second. So they attack, yeah. you just put the play and block. And I've done a lot of, like, I don't know how often these things happen, like, in the real world, but it has happened to me a lot where I've done some crazy plays out of nowhere where I have, like, no chance of winning. My opponent has two mentors out and a jace. And they passed the turn, and I played Sulfur Elemental end of turn. Untap Sulfur Elemental, kill your blockers, attack your Jace. And just... <laughs> and they have, like, a handful of counters, and they can't win, because well, it's all well, uncounterable. Kill plays blockers pretty handily, but I, I wouldn't run it unless your metagame has a ton of mentors. I, I have a question. Why uh, why is Duress over Thoughtseize? Oh, um, I mean, 100% Thoughtseize is just, like, 15, 20 bucks online. Duress is, like, oh. two cents. <laughs> there we now, go. now I don't know for sure if I had thought seasons. I don't. Maybe I do like one and one. Maybe the life loss adds up. Yeah, sure. Um, the sideboard card would definitely be a duress and not a thought season because I'm only ever boarding it in against storm and, mm-hmm. and like mental. Uh, but main deck, you know, I'd obviously be a lot happier with a thought season turn one against shops than okay. a duress turn one against shops. I, I sort of I don't know what the right number is, and I yeah. wouldn't know until I start playing with it, but. I just honestly, it's just a money thing. Right. I, I think it's worth mentioning, just because we're talking about duress slash thoughtsies. Jace, I've been like hot and cold on a card, but I really think that Jace with duress is so much better than either on their own. Yeah, that's um, what I've been. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it just two duress, two Jace doesn't seem like a big deal, but like it really comes into play in a combo matchup because if you didn't have Jace, if you didn't have duress in your deck. Jace would be pretty horrible against the combo. It's like this right. turn two card that doesn't do anything relevant on turn three, and like eventually will generate like maybe combo with an ancestral. You're never gonna get like a double counter off of it. Well, that's the problem is that baby Jace can't really do too much with counter spells. Like yeah, I yeah, mean, like Snapcaster can, for example. Yeah, exactly. But I think just the addition of those duresses, even though sometimes you don't draw them together, it sort of turns Jace in regular matchups as sort of this early game. Advantage engine. Against combo, that's like your end game. You're, you like, you start with, I'm gonna counter your first two spells, and then I'm gonna flip a Jace, and on turn three, I'll like duress you twice, and you'll just never, never get out from under that. Yeah. Um, it, it's, and, and, and similarly, it doesn't always work out, uh, I've only done it like once or twice, but um Jace Shattering Spree against Chops. <laughs> um, it just, it just gives you something to do with the card. Like, you don't want a card that just sits there and draws things against Chops, but, right. When you start talking about the Shattering Spree, suddenly it's a creature, comes down for two, it's easy to get under their spheres, it lets you happily burn your first Shattering Spree without paying Replicate on it. Right. You just like use it, oh, just kill whatever lock piece is stopping me, and two turns from now I'll be able to, you know, kill three cards with it. Sure. Um, I really like it with specific sorceries. In a vacuum it doesn't do much, but if you have sorceries that really do something in this matchup, it can sort of become your late game plan. Right. I do think I'm underprepared for Dredge with this sideboard. Three Ley Lines, one Nihil Spellbond, one Spellbond main deck. It's not really enough if you expect a lot of Dredge. You can theoretically beat Dredge with a combo, though, right? I mean, like, are you... You, you, have to you absolutely can. And yeah. I'm actually... I think I'm pretty favorable in tournament play. I think I've beaten Dredge almost every time I've played against it. But uh-huh. it's always felt like I got a little lucky or they got a little unlucky. Yeah, sure. Um, and also, it's weird how often this comes up, but you can... Use Painter Servant Pyroblast on Bazaar Baghdad as like yeah. a, a thing that matters in game one, right? Like yeah. an option that gives you some time. One thing about the deck is that Painter Servant Red Blast really looks like one of those things that's just like a cute corner case that comes up every once in a while, but 
it comes up a lot. I've won a lot of games off of that, like without grindstone. Like it just, it lets you run these four vindicates and you don't have to be running dead cards. It means that you don't lose to null rod. It means that you don't lose to like weird hate bears. Yeah. You don't lose to like, you can use it to stop an oath and you don't have to run main deck disenchants or sure. abrupt decays or, or whatever. Yeah, I was going to ask, what are you typically winning the game with? Are you winning the game with your combo, or are you winning the game with Tinker? Uh, it's, like, it's, it's a good mix. I, I win the game with a combo just enough to not want to switch to Grixis. Most of the games you could win with Tinker if you wanted to. And I win a lot of games that just feel wrong with just Tinker. Like, I mulligan to six or five, and I just don't have a great hand, but I have a turn on Tinker, and you just keep it. Sometimes they don't have an answer. Well, okay, but, that's um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can win a lot of games with Tinker, and and a lot of games you win. I don't want to say a lot, but you can win games. I mean, I want to say attacking with Painter Servant. It's not like that's how you actually win, but sometimes you play these games where you just drew, you know, eight more cards than they did, and you're gonna draw, you're gonna resolve a will, and yeah, you're getting six mana and playing Painter Grindstone, but you could have also just tutored for Tinker Time Walk if you wanted to, and you could have also just drawn eight cards and attacked four turns and, and Power Blast all their lands. Yeah. Like, it doesn't really count at that point. It wasn't the grindstone that did it. But, uh, yeah, I like it. I li- I think it's awesome to have your combo be all artifacts against shops, because it, it comes down under spheres, comes down under lodestones. It's awesome to have the pyroblast against everything, so you have this kind of versatile... I leave in pyroblast against shops. I don't think I leave in all four, but I leave them in. So, if you compare that to most decks, which, you know, like the first place deck, which had four fluster stones and four missteps, and it has to board all those out, like, I'm leaving in my cards that are bad against shops, because they're good against shops. Right. There are better cards, but it, it frees up your sideboard. Um, sure. I don't want to talk about the individuals in the, the 9th through 16th. There are six copies of Counterbalance in here, and a whole bunch of Terminus. Is this just people who like playing Miracles and decide they want to play Miracles in Vintage, or what? <laughs> I I don't know for sure, but I can tell you, so it's more than one player. They're playing these counterbalance mentor decks, and this is not, this isn't the only time they play the deck. Like, they're doing okay on dailies. It's not like they're dominating every daily, but like, they have proven their ability to win matches with this yeah. deck. This I don't know has, what it means. This guy has three terminus. That's insane in vintage. <laughs> I don't know. Main. But they, they've been doing it. I, I love it. I love that they're doing this. There's a lot of cool stuff in the, like I said, we're not going to go over all the decks. There's a lot of cool stuff in the top 16. There's uh there's the dredge decks that run like ten, ten to cannon. twelve Yep. <laughs> like ten to sixteen main deck counters and sideboard into uh dark depths. There's these terminus decks. We got some some spine of Isha. Yeah. Which isn't that crazy. It it is not super common. There's a transmute artifact. Oh yeah, I just saw that. Yeah, there's a transmute artifact in a deck uh that also has negates. There's a lot of cool stuff in this top sixteen. Yeah, pretty, this uh, is this is this looks like an Ohio meta game. Yeah. <laughs> it was a hundred person event. Yeah, <laughs> Jeff, there's not sixteen people that play at these Ohio events. <laughs> this is yeah. yeah well, uh, so we can go on to the team series open results, talking the Ohio meta games and how interesting they are. So why don't uh, you explain how how this team series tournament is different than? Probably any other tournament that any we, of our viewers have played before. We, we've run, uh, so this is the 
third event that we've run as a split format event. And so the idea is that as a way to try and bring in legacy players to vintage, we run a tournament that has three rounds of legacy, three rounds of vintage, and then whatever the first format was, we, we do that for the top eight. So the last one was vintage legacy, vintage top eight. This one was legacy, vintage, legacy top eight. I think they've actually been pretty popular. I think the the first couple we had, or the uh, the legacy focused ones we've had, had more than twenty players each, and the vintage legacy vintage one we had had seventeen players, which is around, if not a little bit higher than what we normally get for a vintage turnout. Um, I mean, we're we're around sixteen for just a vintage tournament, so. It's sort of interesting to see who plays what in what different formats. I know that there are some players in Vintage who don't really care about Legacy and don't really want to play in this tournament because they only want to play Vintage, and there are certainly some Legacy players who only want to play Legacy and don't want to play Vintage, you know, so we, we lose out on those. But, you know, there's a good group of people who are interested enough in both to, to come out. Or at least we'll sort tolerate of, the other. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, I, I do not consider myself a legacy player at all, but I, I mean, I will definitely play Belcher in legacy if given the opportunity. So, so I mean, that's what I did. I think it's good for both groups to get exposed to the other format. I mean, I think it's, I think you, yeah, I mean, I love the idea. I wish that they had something like that over here. It reminds me of, uh, I don't know if they do this anymore. I don't think they do more than like the split format pro tours. Yeah. Like the constructed and limited players <laughs> having to, Having to begrudgingly play each other's formats. Right. And, you know, that I have this pro tour. Yeah. So it's, it's, and I think, uh, I think a long time ago there were some, at Waterbury they tried to do like legacy and vintage tournaments and they gave you like a, you know, you had like a rank of your performance between the two events, uh, a separate prize for that. Um, right. I like it. It's, it's a lot of fun. I have no idea what I would play in the event, but, but uh, what I'd really like to do, and we've mentioned this before, and, and maybe at some point we'll bite the bullet, is that I want to do a tournament where when you sit down across from your opponent, you flip a coin, and the winner of the flip can either choose to play or draw, or choose the format. And the loser of the flip chooses the other. So <laughs> if you win the flip, you can choose, well, I'm going to play, we're going to play vintage, and your opponent can say, well, I'm going to be on the play, or you can say, I'm going to be on the play, and then your opponent can say, well, I'm going to be on the draw because I'm playing Dragon Legacy. <laughs> or you um, can say, like, we're going to draft Arabian Nights. Well, <laughs> well I mean, you're, you're still limited to the, the two, but yes, I mean, that would sort of oh, be the idea. Uh, if you can, you can pick you want. It's like a like cube sealed deck. Right. Choose your own standard. Yeah. <laughs> so this this is just reminding me of, uh, I think we only, I think we talked about it dozens of times, and we only actually ever did it once, but, so Waterbury used to have these day two events, and it would still be like, 70 person tournaments, but like, sort of nobody cared, which was actually great, you know? Like everyone, today, the first day was the, the big prize, and the second day everyone played crazy stuff. And this like group of friends that I was in came up with this idea of everybody basically builds a deck and puts it in a pool. <laughs> and right before the tournament, you shuffle up the decks, and everyone gets one at random. And yeah. And you don't know what you're playing until the round one starts. You can um, have to send Death House. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it, it wouldn't work if anyone just like put in sixty mountains. It would be hilarious once. Like everybody like tried to put in things that had a chance of winning, but there were definitely a wide variety of like 
whatever the tier one deck it was at the time and then some crazy absurd brew is an interesting concept. You need everyone to, you can't just have random people join that event. Yeah, everyone <laughs> needs to sort of be on the same page as far as uh, how they're going to work it. But that would be a pretty fun tournament yeah. of just like 16 people and nobody knows what they're playing. But <laughs> let's go over the actual results. We sort of quickly glance over the stuff. Yeah, we, we, we sort of spent a lot of time on the um, Power 9 event, so I don't want to do a ton on this. But, I, you know, we ended up with what seems to be a pretty decent mix of decks in both formats. Uh, there was there was a lot of four-color loam decks in Legacy, most of which didn't do all that well. And there there weren't, uh, I think out of 23 players, we had four shop decks, which is pretty low for Vintage, I think, and especially low for Ohio. A lot of our shop players have been out for a while, but um, they're starting to come back. But, I, you know, I think we ended up with a pretty good list. Uh, the, the top eight in Vintage, so the, and, that, and that's the other thing is like it, it doesn't really matter to talk about how decks did in vintage because you really made the top eight based on based your, your legacy, legacy vintage performance, right? So 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 yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just skim real quick through the top eight, see if anything stands out because sometimes there's pretty exciting decks. In these probably tournaments. the list you're going to want to look at is number eight hell type things. <laughs> All right, so, so so real quick, the, uh, there, there's a shop stack that looks very similar to the Melrod shop stack we saw earlier, right? The standard. Uh, a Fenton Oath deck, so it's the three Grizzle Brand Oath. Looks, looks pretty normal, pretty good. Looks like our Nat Moe's top eight yeah. with a Vintage Dragon deck. How that's, was it? That's what happens it? when you get bad advice on what to play. <laughs> did you, did you, you ask know, the bot? No, the I, bot asked, I, I asked Jimmy McCarthy and J.R. Goldberg what I could play. And oh, well, like, I, I wonder what they definitely play Dragon. And then I said, yeah, okay, <laughs> whatever. I played Belcher and Legacy and Dragon and Vintage and went 2-1 with both, so I ended up in the top 8 with a 4-2 and two record. In the vintage portion, the one match that I lost, I felt like my opponent had significantly better hands than I did. So, I mean, that's vintage, and I, I don't feel too bad about that. The other two matches were fairly easy, I thought. It was, as I say, you only need to resolve that one 2-drop enchantment with the dragon yeah. in the yard. That worked out perfectly. You know, I felt like the deck performed well. I had the Jace Prince Prodigy was relevant. I was getting back powerful cards and reusing Thoughtseize and stuff like that. We talked about that a little bit earlier. And then uh, you just go through the Dragon combo. I think what impressed me most was the sideboard. And this is sort of a, a newer innovation in Dragon is that if you're playing Jace Prince Prodigy as a discard outlet, you're playing humans, so you can play Cavern of Souls and use Monastery Mentor and Tassiger and Ariat Salvagers as sideboard cards and sort of try and ignore the graveyard aspect of the game. Like, obviously, the, the Ariat Salvagers Bomberman combo still uses the graveyard, but you dodge Grafdigger's cage. Yeah, and, and Monastery and, Mentor obviously ignores the graveyard entirely, and you just make dudes. So. Yeah, like, it, it's it's almost kind of nice. I mean, it's a real shame if, you know, you play Dragon Run 1 and then they bring in Ley Lives and you draw a bunch of Salvagers that don't do anything, but... Right. The cyborg plan, it uses the graveyard as a resource, yeah. like with Tassiger and Salvagers, but it doesn't need the graveyard to win. Yeah, absolutely. Like the way the dragon does. Right. If they have Tormod scripts, it's still fine, right? Yeah. Like Tassiger is fine against Tormod scripts. Yeah. And it, and it means that your, your Jace is that much better because it's, it's, it's going to the graveyard itself. So. Right. And if they bring in just 15 graveyard hate spells, you're just going to crush in the mentor. Right. So, I mean, ultimately I, I felt really good about how dragon worked out. Um, it's a deck that, I would certainly consider playing again. I would recommend it for other players. You know, learn how the dragon combo works before you play it. But 
Um, it's not not trivial to figure that yeah, out. Yeah, it's not entirely obvious, but but it's not too difficult. But anyway, I mean, I would recommend it for other players. I don't know that I would play it every time because it seems like a deck where people catch on to this is a thing you play all the time and you're sideboard and how it works. Like, I think you lose an advantage there. But we I thought it was talk about later. Yeah, I thought it was good. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, and the other the other deck that to look at is Rick Gideon's Vintage Hellkite Sphinx List. And this, so I play against Rick pretty oh, much wow. weekly. <laughs> Um, right now, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> just, I'm just looking at the list. I hadn't seen it yet. Yeah, I didn't realize what Hellcat you were talking about. Yes, this, this is what Rick is famous for. Let me tell you. So I, I play against Rick pretty much weekly, and this is how most of our games go: is that we'll both sit there and sort of draw cards for a while, and then I'll play a threat, and he'll counter it, and I'll counter back, and he'll counter back, and then maybe I'll play another threat, which he'll counter, and then the last card in his hand will be Thunder Maw Hellkite. <laughs> and so I'm out of cards, he's out of cards, but I'm being attacked for five immediately. And, yeah. and, and so I lose. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So it's, and, and that's sort of how it goes. And the, uh, I mean, he's also got, uh, obviously he's got the Jace and Concentrated Sphinx. Concentrated Sphinx I hate, but it's I'm just, kind of surprised this deck doesn't run a full four cavernsels. Like it's I, only, only two creatures and they're two different other three creatures and they're different creature types. Right. But the advantage you get from your six drop or five drop being uncounterable, I guess it's so left. good. Right. Yeah. It's scary. And obviously there are certainly times when Hellkite or Sphinx comes down early because of Lotus or because he, uh, mana drains into it. Yeah, mana, yeah, he has mana drain in this version. It's something you have to remember is a possibility when you play against him because it's like, it's well, I'm going to, I'm going to lose some life to this Thoughtseize and I'm going to, he's going to lightning bolt me and, you know, I'm gonna take some more damage from a mana crypt or whatever. And then Thunderbolt helps kill you in one turn. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I mean, I'd have to see it in action, but, uh, that's, that must be really fun. Like I said, he's, he's played it in testing for a long time. He's been tuning this forever. It's not a regular top eighter at our tournaments, but I, honestly, I don't know why. <laughs> it beats me all the time in testing. Yeah, he was the one who knocked me out. We we played each other in round six, and he was the one who went on because he just rocked my face. <laughs> the other thing I would add about the deck is that it has a good diversity of counter spells, and there's a lot of times where you'll have a sequence of plays that you need to have resolved in a certain order, but you're not sure exactly what Rick will be capable of as far as stopping. I mean, it's just something to consider when, you know, like, so I need to resolve Yogmoth's will, but he has enough counters that he probably has one or two counter spells. Does he have Mana Drain or Force of Will that will actually counter this, or does he have Red Elemental Blast or Mental Mist up that won't? Yeah. And it, you know, you sort of get in, that sort of gets into your head and like, how long do I wait to try and resolve this spell? Should I try and find backup? What kind of backup do I need? Should I try something else? How many threats do I need? And it can get to you. Now, I think you think about magic too much. You just need to run some more threats out there. I, yeah, I think yes. See what sticks. <laughs> I, I feel like Mana Drain is similar to Thunderball Hellkite in that it's a little slow for Vintage right now, and you can lose the game with it in your hand. But after the game has gone on for a certain number of turns, suddenly the power level is just, like, way better than, than, than everything all the one else, else anyone else is playing. Yeah. You have Thunderball Hellkite and your opponent has Young Pyromancer. When both players have three or four, la- or let's say like five or six mana out, Flusterstorm is not that great. Right. You could easily play around a mental misstep. 
you know, Skull Pierce is worthless, but Mandarin just stops it. Um, right. And Thunderbile kind of just gets in there. Can't, can't bolt it. <laughs> so uh, so I, have, right. I, have a, I have a question going backwards a little bit. You know, you played Belcher as your legacy deck, and I know that you, I see you have like a real sideboard. How often did you sideboard in real magic cards? I'm kind of off the all island sideboard. I didn't. So you think the, the sideboard is worth it? You know, you think I, yeah. I mean, it, if you're trying to troll the format, all islands is definitely the way to go. <laughs> but if, if you're trying to be serious, one thousand percent, you should probably play an actual sideboard. There were a couple decks that weren't running blue, and I brought in a couple of welders and the lions by diamond because they had discard effect. Uh-huh. I think against miracles, I brought in sanded swarms, even though that's not that good. I'm still only bringing in like three cards, maybe four at the most. Uh, so the only kind of Usually Pyretic Ritual, and yeah, usually Pyretic Ritual. Again, some things I'll take out Mana Morphos because it's really not that good against Counter Spells. The Leyline of Anticipation and the Serum Powder are in there for anything that has Chalice, basically. And those would come in for Attack Team Probe and Mana Morphos. So that's it. I mean, I don't do a ton of changes. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. I'm just... Yeah. I know it's been kind of back and forth of like, you know, the sideboard doesn't matter or like here it really doesn't matter. I mean, like the amount of times that the sideboard actually comes into play is still small. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're playing like more impactful cards than Storm Elemental or Entity. Right. And yeah, I mean, I, I think the so I was playing like I said, I brought in Xanthus Funds against Miracles, and the reason that's not great is they play Swords and Terminus. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, if I, if I play Empty the War and, like, they still just beat that with Terminus and it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. But I beat Miracles and some other stuff. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. No, that's interesting. Not, not a vintage comment, but. Yeah. No. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to talk about Belcher. Well, you know, like, I'm coming to the Columbus Grand Prix and if I play in the event, I'm definitely playing Belcher because. <laughs> because why wouldn't you? Why not? Yeah. Yeah, right. Me too. Me too. <laughs> All right, do, do we want to talk about the BSL at all? or? Yeah, we'll I just want to know why did they have Moxes in their sideboards. That's it. Just contact them directly and find out. <laughs> well, do we want to talk about deck choice? Yes. Yeah. Isn't that the whole point? <laughs> and then we talked forever about the Power Nine. It's easy we to talk, talk a lot forever about, about Power a list Nine. Of decks. Yeah, we could, we could go into deck choice. Well, deck choosing, choosing a deck is interesting to me because I don't play Magic all the time because, you know, work and real life and there's not a ton of Magic around me. There's like, I live out in the, the Colorado Island where there's not a ton of Magic players that I know that play Vintage. Yeah. So it's, it's always like, whenever I choose a deck, I feel like I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, I just choose decks that have cards that I like, and I put them together, I go finish them a couple times, and usually the first time I play them is at whatever event I'm going to. Do you, do you goldfish them against another deck, or do you just goldfish them? Or do you just one um, I, I typically just goldfish them. Okay. It's like you, you make sure that when you shuffle and draw, like, the opening hand looks normal and playable. You can, you can cast the spells yeah. that you see. Right, yeah. So my testing is all theoretical. I mean, it's better than no testing. People definitely go to events with less than that. I mean, that's what I did with Dragon. 
So I, I think that was a great little intro to us talking about how people choose decks because obviously choosing a deck, there are huge similarities with every format, but I, I think there's things I hear when people talk about picking vintage decks that I don't hear as often in general. If you read an article online that says, how do you pick a deck for a tournament? It's going to be like, how do we analyze the metagame? And right. the sideboard. But like, let's be serious. Budget is a concern for every Magic player, but for some vintage players, it's a huge concern. It, it completely changes what they can and can't play. And also the fact that there are a lot of vintage players that play once a year, once every few months. Um, I mean, I know you play more than once a year, but uh, some people don't, right? And how, how do you... How do you pick a deck with only a little bit of information? How do you get the information you need to make a good decision? How do you balance, you know, spending a lot of time figuring out what deck you want to play with, like, the fact that you have other things to do because, right. you know, because you're an adult, probably. <laughs> it, it, that's stuff I hear a lot more talking about uh, vintage uh, deck selection than I do with other formats. Not that it doesn't matter, but. Yeah, we. I mean, we started talking about this a little bit before, and I, I think there's a lot of, I mean, there are there are objective ways to choose a deck where you're you know, looking at a metagame and doing lots of testing and figuring out what cards are best, and what decks are best, and what sideboards are best. And then there's like subjective testing where, as Chapel said, I just want to play cards I enjoy, so that's what I put into a deck and I start with that. And there's subjective tests where <laughs> I've been playing this archetype for years and it's the only thing I know and I'm going to play it regardless. I mean, I did that for literally three years in a row playing Belcher. And it was because I didn't really have people to test against and that was the only thing I wanted to play. So Yeah, I mean but, it, it, it's easy to hear subjective, objective and think, oh well, you know, if you're a good player, you'll study the metagame and pick the obviously correct choice. And if you're a bad player, you'll pick something up. But it's not really that straightforward. Right. Number one, because you can't just look at a metagame and know what the best deck is. And chances right. are if you think that and you haven't tested a lot, you're probably lying to yourself. But also, so much comes down, so much in Magic at every level of play, from Kitchen Table to F&M to the Pro Tour, is about, like, not making stupid mistakes. Right. Yeah, it's how well you know your deck. Yeah. Way more than a lot of people would like to believe. And even if you're really convinced that a certain deck is the right call for the metagame, if you think you are going to make more errors with that deck, it it's might pretty not much why never take Dredge to a tournament again. <laughs> I cannot keep track of all those triggers. Yeah, I mean, it's not, and, and that's it, like, it's not complicated. Yeah. It's right. not like objectively complicated to yeah. keep track of the triggers, but some people are better at it than others. Right. And if you know you're, you're gonna miss them, you can't play that deck. Right. You can play online where they tell you about all the triggers. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, I, I, I like the idea of Dredge. Like, I would happily play Dredge in a tournament if I thought I would do well with it, but I, I mean, the few times I've picked it up, it's just been, like, Terrible, terrible experience for myself. <laughs> but but anyway, so we we sort of did a straw poll on vintage on Twitter and uh, asked some people what uh, what they look for, and it's surprising. I mean, there there are definitely people who you know look at the meta game and and try and make a choice. Who is the uh, the one who said? So this is from uh, Low Beyonder. He analyzes the regional and moto meta games, decides what angle to attack it on. And then ignores that and plays greedy dubious mana dot <laughs> And I, you know, I feel, I feel like that's that's probably an honest and common answer. Yeah, right. It's like I'm gonna I'm gonna take a look at what I can expect to be facing and then play whatever I want. 
Well, let's be um, serious. If, if ten people look at the same data, they're not all going to come up with the same deck as right. the deck that beats the Medicaid. Right. Dr. Superstition says, I've done everything from coin flips to Twitter polls, but now I choose the workshop build that suits my alcohol consumption. And I, would, and I, I know would. he's not the only one who has chosen a deck based on alcohol consumption. Randall Witherell does that all the time. <laughs> I asked uh, old guard vintage player Ben Cole the question, and he said something I liked the sound of, which was he said, uh, his strategy is build something that you really like, get drunk and play it against someone playing a real deck the night before, then throw away the deck you really like and frantically build the deck that beat you the night before <laughs> the morning of your tournament. And make, sh- and, make sh- and make sure you run two terrible cyborg slots so you can brag about it later. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I know he did this dozens of times, including like like winning a Lotus with that exact strategy. So it's, uh, it was fun to hear. Dr. Jeebus said he decides what foils he wants to play with the most. It's <laughs> as good a reason as any for a lot of vintage decks. Yeah, um, I mean, I think, I think like card availability as far as like not necessarily I have this card, but I have this card in the version that I want to play it is right. probably uh, I've and I've never heard actually, about I'm sure it happens in other formats, but I've never heard of anyone saying that in other formats, and I've heard that a lot in vintage. Oh yeah, really funny. Right? I mean, that's it's <laughs> it's you know it's part of the fun, right? It's that's the that's part of what it's about. Well, it, it comes up uh, too, like even in proxy meta games, whether you. I mean, you may be able to proxy a card, but you might just want to play a different card that you don't have to proxy because you don't want to look like someone who has to proxy something silly. And so Porkchop Sandwiches says, I still only have two mana confluence and usually just play City of Brass until I can buy two more. <laughs> I have, uh, I can't remember the example, but I've definitely like proxied cards so that they match. So like if I was playing oh, yeah. two Tendrils of Agony and I only have one foil Tendrils of Agony, I'll just Proxy. proxy. Well, I have a, a proxy both tendrils of agonies. Yeah. So that I bet. I mean, tendrils of agonies is a bad call because you can easily get two non-foil ones, but like, uh, I've, I've definitely done things like that. Yeah. Just sort of, <laughs> not really deck selection, but people do it in vintage. It, it fits yeah. it. Well, I think in, in, so, like in smaller metagames, smaller sanctioned metagames anyway, I think you get a lot of people who lend and borrow cards as necessary and, the Craven one says, I've played Delver instead of Big Blue so I could lend power. Same for Murpulk instead of Delver. I mean, like, he's, he has more powerful cards that he lends out to, to other players so that he can, he'll play a weaker deck on his own. Yeah, so, um, I feel like there's a few patterns that came up that I saw people, there's, there's, um, things that are fighting with each other when you're picking your deck. And one of them, sure. we sort of talked about a lot of these, and one of them is, do you pick the deck that you think is best in the metagame versus do you think the deck that you think is just like the, like has raw power is just the best deck right. versus do you think you play the deck that you are the most familiar with. And sometimes there's overlap. Sometimes you think it's the same deck for all three and then you know right. your choices. But sometimes that's three different decks and everyone sort of has their own path to that. Right. Similarly, I know some people who will, when there is a deck that's winning the most, like objectively, even if it's not totally dominant, but it seems to be winning the most, some people will gravitate to that deck. They say, this is the best deck. Obviously, he's winning. I'm going to play this. I'm going to learn this. And other people say, never play the best deck because everyone's going to beat it. So right. don't do it ever. There's no real consensus on that. If there was consensus on that, that metagames would either always be one deck or always constantly be flipping over. Right. So how much testing do you put into a deck before you play it? I mean, like, say you've, you've decided on what deck you're going to play, 
how much testing do you do beforehand? Do you pick a deck that you're feel are practiced with, or do you pick a deck and are you happy to pick a deck and just go into the tournament? So I think for me, and I think this is true for a lot of people, it's very different depending on the different events. There are just events that we sure. really care about and events, I don't want to say we don't care about, but really are different priorities, right? Uh, I've heard this from a lot of people, and it's definitely true for me. Some tournaments, your goal is, I want to absolutely maximize my chance of winning, but a lot of tournaments, my goal is either I want to figure out if this deck is good, or to a lesser extent, if this card is good, or you want to learn how to play a deck better. Now, you can do that in testing, but you can also just do that in a tournament. And it's obviously very different strategies. If if I'm going to a tournament to learn, like if I've never played Dredge before, and I want to play Dredge at a tournament, I'm not going to, just to learn how to play it, I'm not going to test before, because it sort of defeats the purpose, I guess. Right. But a lot of times I'm testing, a, a lot of tournaments I'll go to, I'll play a deck that I've played before, but I'll swap out somewhere between like one to ten cards to just try a new version of the deck. And yeah. I'm more concerned about is this working than actually winning or not. But the the big events, and for me, that's basically just champs. I'll test for for you know pretty far ahead. Or how, how long year? before do you like to choose a deck? Like, what was your timeline for champs last year, for example? Um, it was a I want to say two months. When I no, I didn't pick a deck two months out, but I. It sort of depends on, you have to decide you want to go, right? Like, I'm probably right. going to chance this year, but it wasn't a sure thing that I was going to go last year. So once you just, once I decide, like, and, and if I qualified for a pro tour and wanted to go, this would be a similar thing. Once I decide this is something I'm going to do, you sort of start broad and narrow your way down. At first I play a little bit of every deck. I play a little bit of all the popular decks that I could consider myself playing and then try a few crazy ideas out, kind of see what sticks and then like slowly start cutting decks off from what I'm playing. I mean, I think by far the best testing for a tournament is smaller tournaments. Sure. Um, so I'll play different decks in different tournaments leading up to it. And then maybe a month out, I'll have picked, you know, this is the archetype that I want to play. Yeah, you'll pick the deck and be testing that exclusively. Yeah, and let's start working on cyborg plans and uh, variants and things like that. Which is always very stressful when you, when it's past that month point and you're getting either different testing results than you were before, right. or you run into a new deck that you hadn't tested before and it's just doing really well. For for me, that was uh, last champs. So I was testing a lot of uh, Jessica Ascendancy combo. Uh, it did not do well in the tournament. And sort of like a few weeks before the event, we just really came across this Delver list. We tested Delver before, but this was a specific build of Delver that just crushed my list and was doing pretty good against shops when no other deck was doing well against shops. And at that point, I kind of had to decide I, I was sort of just like, I was all out on the sanity. Like, this, this Delver deck might be better, but I've invested too much time into learning how to play this. I just, and I was not playing, when I piloted the Delver deck, it wasn't doing as well as when other people piloted it. So I just, this, this, maybe this is a better deck than what I have, yeah. but I got to play the deck that I was doing better with. Yeah. Um, I, I think for tournaments, for events that I, uh, as you say, want to do well in, like I want to maximize my chances, like, I like to play the decks against, and play the deck that I want to play against some of the major, not really specific decks, but just, like, ideas. So, like, I'll play, you know, I'll play the deck that I want to play against a shop's deck and make sure that it can do well against something that's playing spheres and trying to lock me out and has mana denial and stuff like that. And I'll play it against a blue sort of control deck that, whether it's heavy control, like Bomberman or Landstill, or if it's something a little bit more combo control or Mm -hmm. something like that. And then I'll, if I have time, I'll play it against a faster combo deck 
I mean, I usually have Belcher together, so it's often that. And it's like, you know, can you counter their personnel and, you know, keep up against a, a dedicated so, yeah. threat plan and that sort of thing. Do you think you're getting a large enough sample size to be able to draw conclusions from that testing? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's, <laughs> but it, I mean, it's essentially what Chapel said about goldfishing. It's like, you know, you look at, you look at your opening hand and say, yes, this is probably playable and I can play the first few spells and here's my plan to win. And it's like, you know, so you, you just get into that sense of if my opponent is playing mana denial, you know, okay, I can keep these sorts of hands. This sort of hand did not work out at all. Like, you're sort of establishing that sort of benchmark, even though it's not, you know, you're not relying on anything, obviously. Yeah, and, and I would I would love at a future date to do, you know, a focused episode on testing and a focused episode on sideboard building. But I think, like, it's easy for, to, like, hear, and I'll do it too, like, here's somebody's testing plan and sort of poke holes and it'd be like, well, look at all the stuff you're missing. But yeah, right. So, something that uh is not, like, obvious at first is that you're, like, the number one enemy in testing is you're always racing against the clock. Yeah. Right? You only have so many hours that you are willing to spend on testing this deck, right. testing any deck before this tournament. And it feels like even, like I say, a month out, but I'm not testing every day. And some people will spend more time and they will get a bigger advantage out of it. But your, your goal is not to, like, learn exactly how your matchup is. Your goal is to get the most value out of each, you know, hour that you set aside to test. So I think it makes a lot of sense to, to, to do a lot of things where you, like I said, we can get more in detail in some future episode, but like not necessarily, you don't need to test against every variant. You want to test against the most extreme version of each variant. Right, yeah. You want to do tests early that will make your deck choice, that will like cut off your deck choice as opposed to like tune it, right? right. You want to find out early. If you if you just can't beat Dredge, you don't want to play your deck. I mean, I mean, you can still, maybe in the right metagame you still could, but Shots is a better example. Like, if you make a version of your deck that brings in 15 cards against Shops and you're still losing, you can just stop testing the deck, right? You know you're not gonna, you know when you come up with a tuned version, you're not going to run the 15 cards, so you can start with that, right? If you start with a 15 card sideboard and it still doesn't feel good, there's no tuning you're gonna do to fix it. As opposed to if you start with the three card sideboard, like, well, this isn't working out, I'll add two more cards. I'll add two more cards. Yeah. You're wasting all this time testing, and then eventually you have a whole deck that you spent all this time that you can't even use. You well, might play it anyway. You can, test, you can test necessarily different ways. You don't have to sit down and play tons of games of Magic. You can probably, like, you know, read your cards, think about how they interact, and, like, think about, you know, really situations that are going to come up as you're playing Magic. So you're like, oh, I'm playing the new Jace. Oh, okay, like, I can block with him and then flip him and he won't die, and yeah, absolutely. You think about stuff like that. You don't necessarily have to just sit there and play 40 games. Right. Yeah, and it really helps to have... It really you know your cards, stuff. right? Like, you know yeah. how they interact with common vintage cards. I find I get so much more value when I test with someone in person. Like, you can play dozens of games online pretty fast and get data. But when you test with a person who you trust, when I say that, I mean at the end of the game, when you say, when like, I won or you won, and you say, well, I would have won if this happened. Like, when you, when you play against someone in a tournament, you beat them, like, half the time. They're like, oh, well, I would have won if this happened. Right. Because everyone wants to think they would have won. You want to test with somebody who, at the end of the game, they say, yes, actually, if you had that card, you would have won, or you wouldn't have won because of this reason. Right. And back, back up the game, and you have to be honest to yourself, and they have to be honest with themselves and with you, and figure out, oh, 
you know, would it have mattered if I had played an energy flux? Like, would it have mattered? If, like, I got mana screwed, but did it really matter? And that you get so much more out of your testing time uh, if you can do that. You don't have to be, like, yeah. good at the game. You just have to, like, not, like, not value you winning. You don't want to win, right? You want to figure out who should have won. Right. You want to win when you get to the tournament, but. <laughs> well, in testing against talented opponents, I mean, they always say you should test against people who are better than you, but. Obviously, that only works for half the people. <laughs> but I mean, that's so valuable is just being able to get that, that kind of second opinion, second set of eyes on what's going on and have it be reliable, like you said. So just, uh, deck selection. I'll throw some stuff out there. Personally, I don't, I place almost no value on surprise factor. So I don't like a transformational sideboard. I don't like picking a deck because I think my opponent doesn't know how to play that thing. Now, I think I overdo that. Okay. I think because there is a genuine advantage to that. But I think a lot of people overdo it a lot in the other direction. You go to a tournament, you have some game plan that only works if they don't see it coming, and you're never going to win the tournament, because by the time you top eight, everybody knows about it. It's not like it's a thousand people, and they can't just watch your games. And if it's something that crazy, right, like people are going to talk about it. People are going to, if you top in a tournament, somebody in that top eight is going to ask all of their friends, hey, did you play against Andy? Did you see what he's playing? Did he sideboard anything crazy against you? Like, you're going to run into someone that you're not going to trick. And I don't like the idea of, like, the, like, expecting experience. Like, uh, this deck isn't very common, so people don't know how to play against it, so they'll make mistakes. You definitely win games that way. I don't value that. I don't know if you guys have an opinion. I, I, I only pick decks that have cards that I like. That's pretty much it. I don't, I don't think, yeah. That sometimes that overlaps. Like when you play cards you love, you end up playing off the wall things periodically. That, that people do make mistakes playing against because it's strange. That said, that well, you like pyromancy's attention, and exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but as soon as you play against someone who knows what they're doing, you just die, and that's fine. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I play a lot of different things, and I don't get locked into stuff. But I, you know, I always tend to feel like my opponents are going to be better than I am, whether that's, you know, I think in a lot of cases that's fair, so, <laughs> um, you know, I and, I and I certainly feel like my opponent knows more what they're doing with their deck than I know what they're doing with their deck, so I try not to play against my opponent in the deck selection process, like, I'll pick something that I feel like I know what's going on or that I feel is good to start with, and I, you know, I think there's a lot of cases where Vintage is sort of a high variance format, as we mentioned earlier. So it's like, if you are starting with good cards in your deck, like, you already have a good leg up on the rest of the competition. And that's, you know, that's why, like, when new people are looking for decks, like, I try to, as much as I appreciate the hate bear strategies and, like, even some of the Delver strategies, it's like, those can be hard to get out of holes with like if your if your opponent starts off well you can just get run over because it's vintage mm-hmm. um and it, you know i think that you have a benefit of being able to play with powerful cards and you know resolve necropotence and the game gets a lot easier like if you, if you don't know what's going on in vintage you can resolve necropotence and draw 10 cards and you're probably you know gonna be better off that would be my thing is just you know if you're Going into an unexpected situation, like you just want to have powerful cards in your deck. 
Yeah, if you're, start, if you're not, all else being equal, you know, Yon Boswell is better than Snapcaster Mage. I know yeah. that's not true, but it often is. <laughs> Situationally, yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I think um, when people, it's a very similar question is playing what you know versus playing the metagame. It is also related to being worried about playing the top deck because other people are gunning for it. I think the idea of uh, this is a top deck, everyone's going to metagame for it is a little, some people overstate that because just because everyone knows a deck is in the field doesn't necessarily mean they can prepare for it if, if the metagame is diverse or that they know how to prepare for it. You get an advantage if your opponent doesn't know how to beat your Hermit Druid deck, but you also get an advantage if your opponent doesn't know how to beat your Storm Combo deck. And that's it's still there. And at the top levels, in, in the finals, your opponent is going to know how to beat your deck, whether it's one or the other, right? So, so going back to Nath's point, if you're if the bad players don't know how to beat you and the good players do know how to beat you, you might as well be playing the deck that is just better in a vacuum. It's not always that clear cut, but I'm never worried about this is a this is a popular deck everyone's going to beat me because usually I'm not too impressed with the popular sideboard cards that people bring in against the top decks. Hmm. What do you think of the play what you know versus play what's good? I've gone back and forth on that for many years. I thought there was only ever one best deck in vintage at a time. I thought it was Psychotog and that it was Gifts for a long time. And I was like, it'd be stupid to play anything but that. But I really think since then, part of this is my admittedly very limited and not great performances on the Pro Tour um, and just playing other formats and playing a lot more vintage, just seeing how many games come down to just like tiny mistakes, like not even, it's not complicated stuff. It's just so many games come down to like missed triggers. There's a lot to you keep can't. track of in Magic. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's just can't. a lot to read and see and do and your opponent's doing stuff and it's all new and, you know. Yeah, and you just, you can't lose those games. Right. Right. If you lose those games, you're, I have lost a lot of power to like stupid <laughs> that I would be embarrassed to tell people about, but like it just <laughs> happens. And I know that as I get better at the game, and I'm, I might be worse now than I used to be, but like as you get better at the game, you, you catch the stupid mistakes more often than you stop making them. <laughs> right? Like you make them less, but you also just like, like catch them when it's too late and realize that Games you have been losing to what you thought was Mana Screw. You know, games you thought you were losing to all kinds of variants. You weren't. You missed the trigger. And you just never knew and your opponent never told you. You can't lose those games. And if there's any chance that your deck choice is going to affect that, you can't play that deck. Also, I think I'm more... I, I don't want to alienate anyone. I don't enjoy playing shops as much as I enjoy playing blue decks. And I'm not ashamed to say that, like, when I was convinced shops was the best deck in the format, you know, I would sometimes play shops, but I wouldn't always play it just because if it were a small event, like champs is different, but if it were a small event, it's like not worth it for me to go to the event and play all day a deck that I'm not enjoying playing. If, yeah. if the prizes aren't that big, if there's not much on the line, I can, you know, I, I'm okay playing something else just to test or just for fun. Um, yeah. That's less true in a big event like champs or like uh, one of the power nine challenges, but that, that's definitely an example of not playing the best deck at all costs. Yeah, I think you see a lot of, uh, a lot more people in vintage playing decks that they want to have fun with. I mean, even if it's, you know, they still think they can win and want to play a powerful deck. It's not like they're choosing terrible combos or anything like that, but it's, you know, they want to play something that they enjoy playing for 
four or five rounds or whatever it is and, you know, play against their friends and then, you know, have an enjoyable day rather than like grind out nine rounds or whatever format it is. Yeah. And this doesn't apply to most people, but, um, when I stream magic, I don't really want to play. My goal number one is to be entertaining and number two is to do whatever to test or win or whatever it is. So, you know, when I was testing, um, Ascendancy for champs. I think Ascendancy is a pretty fun deck to watch, but I was playing it every week, so I would play other decks just to just to mix it up. Like right now, I really like Painter, but I don't want to play Painter every time I stream because it's it gets old. And I like playing crazy stuff because it, it's fun to see people, you know, my desire into Monastery Mentors, even if it's not necessarily the greatest choice. Fun is what it's all about. It's true. Yeah. There's so you 1, can't make 000. money playing vintage, right? <laughs> People say they do, and maybe some people have, but there was a period of time where I was winning as much as anybody. I wasn't winning the most, but I was top eighting a lot of tournaments where you win power, and you know you're paying a drive to the tournaments, you're paying to stay in hotels. Right? Yeah. Even if you're the best player in the room, which I wasn't, but even if you're the best player in the room, it's vintage. You're still going to lose some games, right? To crazy stuff. You win eighty dollars at the vintage tournament that you spent three hundred dollars to attend. Yep. I did once, uh, many years back, uh, went to a Power 9, SCG Power 9 event in Charlotte, North Carolina. I drove there from Massachusetts. 18, 20 hour drives like that. It's like some absurd drive. Myself. <laughs> I went there. It's a two day event. I top aided. I won a mox. I popped a tire in the hotel parking lot. Oh. <laughs> so I had to stay an extra night and get my car fixed. I, I won a mox emerald. They lost like hundreds of dollars in the trip. <laughs> I realized like, Maybe, like, the, the goal can't be to, like, you can't pay your rent off power. Yeah. Uh, it's not, you have to be willing to spend a little money, I guess. But or you at least have you, all those memories, Brass. It's all those terrifying memories. <laughs> <laughs> that might not be a good memory, but <laughs> it is a memory. So do we still want to talk about food, or we? I mean, it seems like we've, we've already put pizza. a lot of. Okay, everyone's favorite pizza topping. Just the one. Just the one. Yeah, tomato. Fresh tomato. I like yeah. pineapple. I like them in anything. My wife is absolutely insane about Hawaiian pizza. Like, if there's an option, she wants Hawaiian pizza. She's I, I like pizza. Hawaiian pizza too. I just, so yeah, I like pizza. I started with Hawaiian pizza, but now I'll just put pineapple on other pizzas. Maybe like a like a pizza with like a bunch of veggies and like peppers and stuff. Just throw pineapples on it. So what the are, are we talking New York crust or Chicago style or um, Detroit style? Does that matter for your topping? Kind of does. It probably does. I think That's I prefer. Um, I mean, if, if it's thin crust, I prefer a Hawaiian pizza. But I don't think I want a thick crust Hawaiian pizza. Not that I would turn it down because it's pizza, uh, but you know, yeah, yeah. It's, my first choice would not be that. I'm definitely New York style. I've had like the really good Chicago pizza. I'm not gonna say it was bad. It was definitely very, very good. But it's just, you know, it's just not what I want from. Uh, yeah. When did Detroit style pizza become a thing? I had never heard of it. Jets is Detroit style pizza. I think if you're if you're thinking Chicago style, it's like a pizza casserole. So you have like a layer of crust, and then there's like a ton of cheese and sauce, and then like Detroit style is a thicker crust. Square pan. It's really more of a just a yeah thick crust. 
pizza with no edges. So. That sounds terrible. It's delicious. It's, it's, yeah, it's <laughs> really good. It. It'd be great. I'm just telling I, you. I had, by the I had a Detroit-style pizza from a food truck in Austin like five years ago, and it was very good. But it's not because I think it was a Detroit-style pizza. The balsamic reduction was awesome, and I, that's <laughs> the only thing I really remember. That sounds way too painful. I, 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 I had never had it before. I went down to spend some time with a friend of mine in Columbus, and they got Jets, and I ate so much pizza that first time. It was. <laughs> this sounds ridiculous, but it really tasted that day like one of the best pizzas I had ever had, and I just like ate myself silly. Jets is really good. I, I'm, I'm not sure I've had one that tasted quite that good since then, but it's become my go-to pizza. Yeah, there yeah, um, this place is like a Via 313. It was out of a food truck in Texas. Yeah, we. I know that the Jets is pretty regional, I think, so I don't know that everyone has it, but uh, they're pretty good. That's been our our regular for a while, although, honestly, like, I think if we're, if we're just looking for value pizza, we just go to Pizza Hut. Value because it's, like, almost free, basically. Well, yeah, value pizza because it's, like, it's an $8 pizza. <laughs> I've had so much variance from Pizza Hut. Like, I've had really good pizza, Pizza Hut pizzas, and then I have Pizza Hut pizzas where I'm like, this is terrible. Why do we still try this? Why do we really? still roll the dice here? <laughs> what? What pizza did you get that was terrible? It's the same pizza. We just get, like, a, a standard deep dish pizza with some toppings, and sometimes the crust and cheese are awful, and sometimes they're great. It's It's very strange. So, so anecdote, if you order, I don't know if this is still true, but if you order Pizza Hut online, after they've closed, they don't just not deliver the pizza, they deliver the pizza when they open. (laughs) (laughs) I learned that because a roommate of mine, like, you know, stayed up till like four in the morning playing video games once and like tried to order pizza at like four in the morning and didn't, you know, didn't get it and fell asleep. And then the next day... (laughs) Woke up like so hungover at like I don't know like seven or something. <laughs> they were trying to deliver this pizza, and he was just eating pizza all day. Excellent. Mine. So, does anyone have a favorite local pizza chain? So, or lo- favorite local pizza place rather, not a chain? Yeah, Boston is uh, not that great for pizza. Well, so there's a place in in Denver. I haven't been in a long time actually, but it's called Benny Blanco's, who is the villain from Carlito's Way, played by John Lovano. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. It, but I've only ever been there probably after two in the morning. You only ever get cheese slices. You pay in cash, and you stand outside and eat them. It's it's more like the experience. It's right next to a place called Beauty Bar, which is kind of like a <laughs> bar that's in other places as well. <laughs> um, so you know, people stumble out of the bar. It's more an ex- it's it's like the whole experience. Yeah. The pizza is pretty good. Um, it's like two dollars for a slice of enormous. Pizza. You use it to soak up beer inside you. <laughs> exactly. That's probably my favorite place locally. Yeah, I think the the place that we like to go to is a little fancier pizza place. You actually, Josh Chapel actually went there with us. There's two locations in Columbus, both uh, Harvest Pizza, and uh, they have some good combinations of toppings as well as a nice bar. So. But that place was really good. Yeah, you went yeah, there too. I, I guess we went there after that. Yeah. Jeff, Jeff in, in Toledo, there's a place downtown, and I don't know if it's a chain or not. Um, so maybe you can tell me a place called Pizza Popolis. 
feel like I've heard of that, but maybe it's just from you. But yeah, it was really good. We don't go there because, yeah, it's really only in Toledo. Um, but, uh, it's, it's super good. It's downtown, and so I don't like to go downtown if I can avoid it. But since my in-laws live right there, like if we're getting pizza at their place, we'll get it. And it's a really good, uniqueish pizza. They do like the thin crust thing, and, uh, it's quite delicious. Nice. Do you have a, a, a topping combination that you like there? Or? They have some unique stuff, but I can't think of any off the top of my head. I would have to go and sample it again to find out. Yeah, the, the one we like at Harvest is the uh, Yuma pizza, which has uh, chorizo sausage and jalapenos and corn, like sweet corn. And uh, that's, that's a pretty good combo. Pretty spicy. I like it. So I had said that pizza's bad in Boston, but I forgot there's a place I really like. So in the North End, which is like Boston's Little Italy, uh, there's just a place called Ernesto's. It's just like pizza by the slice. It's one of those places where there's a counter with a bunch of pizzas that have been made, and you have to pick one of those. So they don't have a menu, or they have a menu, but you just you have to pick something they already have, and they'll just heat it and give it to you. Uh, it's really really good. There's a, and there's a place in Providence, Rhode Island, where I used to live, called Antonio's, which is very similar. So I guess that's those are my favorite pizza experiences. Little. There's like barely any place to sit down, just big racks of pizza, and you point one out and they eat it up. I was just remembering, we went to a, my wife and I went to a pizza place in Maryland, and I'm sure I can find, they made pizzas that were essentially giant calzones. It was like, you got a full-size pizza that they then folded over on itself, <laughs> and it was just this massive toppings uh, wrapped in dough. I think we got one of those, and we're probably eating it for like three meals I think we got out of it. <laughs> it was just giant pizza. I'll see if I can find that place. I don't remember the name. But I've got a backup because apparently, and Kristen and Nate always order when we get pizza from here, so I didn't know what their menu is, but apparently they call themselves um, authentic Chicago-style pizza. We just have never had their Chicago-style pizza. You, so. You've never had the deep dish at the Chicago-style <laughs> pizza? Just, looking at this website, this is entirely new information for me. Also, oh, they man. have a bunch of Michigan locations. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah, the more you know, Pizzapopolis, um, really good for the things they're apparently not specialized in. That's probably really good, then. Yeah. They're probably even better if you get the things that they specialize in. Yeah, I, I, I would imagine. I'm going to have to find out. Yeah. It's happened again. You wasted another perfectly good hour listening to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Matt Mose. I'm Josh Chappell. And I'm Andy Probasco. And we hope you'll join us next time for more Serious Vintage. Take a little trip. Take a little trip. Take a little trip to see. All our good ideas are going away. Both of them. <laughs>